Well, good, good afternoon. I'm Rich Armitage, a trustee at CSIS, and I'm standing in uh, for John Hamry, who's uh, unavoidably uh, out of uh, Washington today. Uh, and I have double honor today. First of all, let me welcome all of you uh, here, and also Ambassador. Pleased to have you, Minister. Uh, delighted that you could spend some time with us. First of all, I want to make sure that everyone recognized Dr. Amy Seawright, who was formerly a Deputy Assistant Secretary for South and Southeast Asia in the Pentagon. She's joined CSIS, our family, as a uh, as senior advisor and the director of the Southeast Asia program. So the Pentagon's loss is our gain. And the second very enjoyable duty I have today is to introduce our guest. You know, in a very real way, since uh, August 11th, 1965, when Dean Rusk sent a letter to uh, then Foreign Minister Raji Ratnam, uh, we've been depending on Singapore for views, comments, uh, policy recommendations, advice on Asia. And it is Republicans and Democrats have all benefited from this. Now, interestingly enough, our guest today, a 15-year politician who's had uh, two other previous minister posts, minister, I think, of water and the environment, and minister of youth, culture, and sports. He is now not only the foreign minister of Singapore, he's also uh, the Smart Nation Initiative minister, so I kind of dual-hatted. Shows you how, uh, how uh, much our Singaporean friends uh, like heavy duties and hard lifting. Our guest is by training an ophthalmologist. So not only can he see Southeast Asia clearly, but he's gonna help us see Southeast Asia clearly or anywhere else you wanna take us to, Mr. Minister. So if I could uh, introduce uh, to CSIS, uh, the, the Foreign Minister of the Republic of Singapore, Mr. Uh, Dr. Vivian uh, Villakrishnan. Thank you. Minister. Thank you, Richard. Um, first of all, I must say I'm somewhat shocked to see so many of you here today. I didn't think you, so many of you would be interested in views from this tiny island state called Singapore. Um, I'm delighted to be here. It's an honor to be here. I mean, I've been to Washington many times in my different incarnations, but this is my first time speaking here as the Foreign Minister of Singapore. So let me begin with the caveat that Singapore is really, really small. If you go from east to west, uh, it's about 30 kilometers. North to south, 20 kilometers. Uh, we would sink, we would disappear into many lakes in the United States and you wouldn't notice us at all. Therefore, the views that I'm going to express uh, by definition, are going to be coloured by this sense of smallness and of the fact that we've only been a sovereign nation for just over 50 years. And in fact, we, we didn't even fight for independence. We basically got kicked out by a larger neighbour. So imagine downtown Manhattan being ejected by upstate New York and then having to have an independent foreign policy, an independent army, navy, air force, airport, ports, uh, power generation, water. You, you, you get the fact that by definition, therefore, the leaders of Singapore have had to be somewhat unusual and to have a somewhat unique 
perspective. One impact of being small and vulnerable is that we believe that we are entirely dependent on the external environment. And the greatest sin for the foreign minister of Singapore uh, is to believe in wishful thinking. In other words, the world will carry on quite happily without us. Uh, and if we don't make ourselves relevant or useful, uh, life goes on, but we would sink beneath the waves. We in Singapore believe that the American presence in the Asia-Pacific region has been a benign presence since the Second World War, or indeed even earlier than that. And let me explain this point, because this is worth uh, emphasizing. When President Obama announced the pivot to Asia, quite frankly, some of his critics charged that the term pivot, in fact, was a Freudian slip, and that it suggests that America had somehow left Asia and was now pivoting back. And the trouble with the pivot analogies that you can also pivot away again. But the point I wanted to make today was that in fact, if you take a longer term view of things, America never left Asia, never left in particular the Asia Pacific region. Many people have forgotten that in fact it was Teddy Roosevelt that helped negotiate an end to the Russian-Japanese war in 1905 and for which he became the first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. So it wasn't President Obama, uh, it was Teddy Roosevelt a century ago. But more recently, President Obama has attended the G7 meeting in Japan. He went to Hiroshima. He's also more recently uh, visited Vietnam. And these two trips have evoked memories some painful, but they've also evoked memories of the cost in blood and treasure that America has shed in Asia and the impact that sacrifice has had on Southeast Asian countries. America's interventions in the Korean War immediately after the Second World War and then in the Vietnam War these have been costly. I'm not sure how well they are regarded or accepted within America itself. Uh, but let me tell you the perspective from a non-communist Southeast Asian state. Your sacrifice bought non-communist Southeast Asia precious time and space. And if you go back to what was happening in our part of the world, in the mid-1960s. The fear was that communism was on the march, like dominoes, the rest of us would fall. And having America engaged and drawing real red lines in the jungles of Southeast Asia made a difference. In these 50 years, Singapore's per capita GDP went from 500 to today, it's about 55,000. US dollars. 
some significant credit for that achievement should also go to America for giving us, as I said earlier, time and space to prove that a free market with access to technology, innovation, rule of law, and free trade was a workable model. So Singapore's success is proof of the model, but also proof that the American presence over decades in Southeast Asia made a major positive difference. But even as America contributed to Southeast Asia, the growth of the Asian middle class also created new markets for American goods and services. And indeed, it provided new frontiers for American companies. So it's a bilateral account, and a bilateral account that has been healthy. The US also continues to attract some of Asia's brightest and best talent, who in turn have contributed to America's vibrant economy and society. Today, some enthusiasts in Asia have called this the Pacific century, alluding to the fact that many of the high growth areas are going to be along the Pacific Rim. We know that Asia is driving economic growth. East Asia alone accounted for about one third of global growth in 2015. And despite some signs of a slowdown, of a weaker global outlook, Asia is, is, is expected to outperform most other regions with a projected 6.2% average growth per annum for the next five years. 6.2% is not a trivial number. And if it is achieved on a sustained basis, becomes an even more impressive figure. So the point I'm making is that Asia is a growth opportunity. Asia is an increasingly important export market for the US goods and services. Total trade with ASEAN, that's the 10 states within Southeast Asia. Total trade between US and ASEAN was $241 billion in 2013. Taken as a whole, ASEAN is the US fourth largest export market and the fifth largest supplier of US imports. The exports to ASEAN alone supported an estimated half a million jobs in the United States in 2013. Moreover, with the creation of the ASEAN economic community, we now have an a more integrated economic zone in Southeast Asia. We like to project this as a single zone, a single production and investment zone. And this is collectively an economy which is worth about 2.6 trillion US dollars, the third largest market in the world. But that's not all, because we estimate that by 2030, this 2.6 trillion will quadruple to about 10 trillion. And the other point is that 65% of the 620 million people in ASEAN are below the age of 35. So there's a demographic dividend that has not yet been fully harvested. And this is a point which puts us in contrast even with China and certainly against Japan and Korea. The US is a Pacific power, and I therefore 
submit to you that you should be well positioned to take advantage of these emerging opportunities. Your alliances and partnerships in this region form the bedrock of American power and influence in the century to come. The U.S. has promoted an open and inclusive rules-based framework for international cooperation, for trade, for resolution of differences, and the U.S. has consistently supported regional institutions. So the point I'm making in all this extended preamble is that the U.S. is welcome in the Asia-Pacific because you have been a benevolent power, a constructive force. You have created enormous opportunities for the people living in Southeast Asia and for your own citizens. President Obama's personal efforts to deepen engagement have also been deeply appreciated in Southeast Asia. And indeed, he needs to be commended for making it a priority to attend almost every single East Asian summit during his two terms of his administration. I think he's, by this year, he would have made it seven uh, East Asia summits. In Asia, physical presence, a handshake, to be able to look you in the eye still makes a difference. So the fact that he's made that effort has given him far more than just brownie points, but it is a personal statement of commitment. The US-ASEAN summit in Sunnylands in January this year also sent a very strong signal of the US commitment to engage ASEAN and to build bilateral ties with each ASEAN member state. But those of us who recognize America's indispensable role in the region, and here I want to be blunt, we are concerned that America might be at an inflection point. From afar, we sense that perhaps ground sentiment is shifting, that perhaps Americans are becoming wary of costly foreign interventions and even becoming increasingly suspicious of free trade. And it's not my role and I don't have the locus standi to dole out advice on how to address these domestic political issues. But nevertheless, it is our hope that America will not lose that sense of confidence, that can-do spirit, and that sense of mission that has energized American foreign policy and indeed American approach to its global role for the past century. Every country is watching America's actions very closely and will draw its own conclusions from the U.S. commitment to its international role. And then, having watched word and actions, will adjust their strategic calculations accordingly. In Asia, no country pays as much attention to America as China. China constantly calibrates its foreign policy in reaction to and in anticipation of America's moves. China is aware that the U.S. is the only power that can check its rise. And some in China, in fact, are convinced that America is out 
to do exactly that, to check and contain the rise of China. Some of these hardliners worry when they look at a map and they indicate where America's networks of alliances and partnerships in the region are, that this looks like a map set out to contain China. Now, on the other hand, there are some in the US who are not yet ready to accept China as a peer superpower and feel that China is encroaching upon America's strategic interests. They view China with suspicion, convinced that it is determined to challenge America's dominance and think that China wants the US out of the Pacific altogether. Now, in this audience, I'm sure we're all aware the reality is far more nuanced than that. And in fact, probably falls somewhere in between these two extremes. There are elements of both competition and cooperation between the US and China, and neither side wants conflict. Neither side wants a shooting war. And both countries, in fact, are increasingly interdependent. And in fact, if you think about it even on a historical basis, where a rising power meets a resident power, I can find no historical parallel where the two protagonists are so interdependent in terms of their economy, their people-to-people -people exchange, the flows of funds, T-bills, investments, the flow of students. You know, it's interconnected, interdependent on historically unprecedented scale. And that means dealing with these two elements of competition and cooperation. Uh, we're really in uncharted territory. And this will pose thinkers and the leaders on, in both China and in the United States with enormous challenges in the years to come. On the security front, the U.S. security guarantee has helped keep the geopolitical environment in Asia relatively stable and has, quite frankly, also prevented Japan and the ROK from going nuclear. Without the security of the U.S. nuclear umbrella, I think Northeast Asia, notwithstanding DPRK, Northeast Asia would be even more volatile. So this stability, and, and, and here's where there's a bit of a paradox. This stability that has been provided for to a substantial extent by the United States has also provided the context and the circumstances for China's own explosive growth in the last three decades. China is not aiming for global domination, or at least not yet. But it does want to have a say in shaping its external environment, in influencing the rules and institutions that govern international relations, and, and this is an oriental point, 
It wants to be treated with respect. This is normal. This is to be expected. And therefore, there should be, we, none of us should be surprised that the rise of a new power, especially one in Asia, is a very delicate process that requires careful adjustment and a sense of balance on all sides, including small, tiny states who happen to be in the neighborhood. It's a tough time to navigate these currents. And it is especially the smaller countries like us that hope that China and America will be able to work around the differences, compete but keep the competition within reasonable limits, cooperate effectively, and above all, avoid conflict. Small countries like us in Southeast Asia require as much diplomatic and strategic space as possible. Quite frankly, we do not want to be forced to make invidious choices. And our plea to the Chinese as well as to the Americans is to avoid a zero-sum mentality. Most, if not all, countries in the region desire good relations with both the US and China, and even those with territorial disputes actually do want a functional and constructive relationship with China. One issue that has loomed large over the regional strategic picture is the South China Sea. Ter these territorial disputes are complicated by history, fueled by nationalism, and quite frankly, do not lend themselves to easy solutions. It will require deft diplomacy, the exercise of political will, and a healthy dose of mutual strategic trust and cooperation to solve these problems. The key word here is strategic trust. And as I said earlier, there is actually a deficit of strategic trust. And that makes it very difficult to stretch out in faith and to achieve a lasting solution uh, which everyone can be happy with or which everyone can feel safe from. So, frankly, what we're trying to do right now is to remind all parties, whilst a final solution may be very difficult, in the meantime, do not take actions that will escalate tensions or spiral or lead to a spiral that will go out of control. As a non-claimant state, Singapore does not take sides on the merits of the individual disputes, but we do hope that all disputes can be settled peacefully and in accordance with the principles of international law. And it's important to understand why Singapore has to take this principle so seriously. As a small country, we cannot subscribe to the concept that might is right. Because if that was the case, there is no space in this world for small countries. And if you don't want to settle things on the basis of might is right, and you don't want to resort to overt conflict, there has to be access to diplomatic and legal means to resolve differences. In other words, we have, by definition, to subscribe to a rules-based world order. And Singapore herself is no stranger to maritime disputes. We abide by international law, 
and we look to international institutions to settle disputes. And I can give you a real-life example. We had a difference with our neighbor, Malaysia, over Pedra Branca, which is an island. Uh, it's actually part to the, to the east of the peninsula of Malaysia. We took the case to the International Court of Justice, accepted, and we both accepted its decision. In fact, within the 10 ASEAN countries, at least six countries have resorted to arbitration or to the International Court of Justice for disputes between us. I believe American policymakers share this view on the importance of a rules-based world order. We want to see international norms and rules upheld, and we believe that freedom of navigation and overflight in the South China Sea is critical for all countries, not just the claimant states, because of the enormous volume of trade that flows through the South China Sea. We hope that America will continue to maintain this principled position and that all parties will work together to maintain regional peace and stability. At the same time, if you strip away all the tactical and the legal and the diplomatic dimensions to it, what is really going on in the South China Sea is that America's overall relationship with China is evolving. And because it is still evolving, we're not yet at the final point of equilibrium. As, unfortunately, Singapore has been tasked with the role of being the coordinator of ASEAN-China uh, relationship for the next three years, that puts us in a slightly warm seat. Uh, because you get expectations that we can't fulfill. But in our typical, pragmatic, non-ideological Singapore way, uh, we're just trying to act as an honest broker, maintain a principled position, keep dialogue going, and be prepared to speak truth to power. In theory, China and ASEAN signed a declaration of conduct of parties in the South China Sea in 2002, 14 years ago. And as part of that declaration of conduct, we're supposed to negotiate a code of conduct. Quite frankly, progress on this has been glacial, although the South China Sea is actually a tropical sea. <laughs> we could wait for final solutions, but as I've alluded to earlier, I'm not a big fan of final solutions. So we said, well, are there things that we can do in, in the inter interim to build confidence? So we said, well, how about expanding the code of, for unplanned encounters at seas to basically regulate conduct of ships at sea? You know, it, it's a very dangerous phenomenon when you get young men and young women uh, with lots of testosterone uh, navigating ships and feeling that they can't give way because their manhood or their leadership is at stake. So having cues, a code for unplanned encounters, helps to reduce the possibility of collisions and incidents at sea. Another interim 
proposal we put was, well, instead of just focusing on naval vessels, how about extending queues to Coast Guard vessels as well? Because in fact, if you come to Southeast Asia, some Coast Guard vessels are very large. Uh, maybe they were just repainted naval craft. These are small steps, and as I've said, these are interim steps. But nevertheless, we are trying to pursue them because we're just trying to build constructive, necessary steps to expand the level of the reservoir of trust and to implement mechanisms that will serve as relief valves for tensions that would otherwise build up. Let me turn now to the TPP. And the key point I want to make today is that the TPP is about far more than trade. It may look like a free trade agreement, but its significance goes far beyond that of trade. The TPP is by far the best way, and indeed will be looked upon as a litmus test on whether or not America remains rooted, connected, and integrated to the Asia-Pacific. If it is ratified, it will be a game-changer. Not only does it make economic sense, it is also a unique opportunity for America to secure its strategic interests in Asia for the long term. I believe it was Secretary Carter who said that for him, passing the TPP was as important as another aircraft carrier. I think Amy can vouch for that. Um, I think, in fact, that may be an underestimate because what is at stake is American credibility. And there are many leaders in Asia who have gone out on a limb to support the TPP. If having marched everybody up the hill you march down now, the, it would have been better if we never even started on this journey. So getting it passed is absolutely crucial. Unfortunately, uh, at least in our interactions or the reports I've read so far, it's not a done deal. It's not a given. In the last two days, I've been talking to a variety of uh, congressmen, senators, and leaders. Frankly, my sense of it is that at an intellectual level, everyone knows it makes sense. It ought to be done. No one seriously argues with me against it at an intellectual level. Yet, I know as a politician, this is one of those things where people hope it gets done, but without their fingerprints on it, without having to pay a political price for it. But in life, Everything meaningful, everything significant does require effort and there is a price to be paid. And part of the reason for my trip here now is to persuade as many of people as possible and to persuade you to tell uh, Congress that this is not only a price that's worthwhile, this is essential. This is essential for peace and stability and for American integration into the Asia-Pacific area. The TPP is projected to increase U.S. exports by around by an additional 120 billion annually by 2025, and this will create 80 billion U.S. dollars annually in additional income for U.S. workers. I think this again is you know it's part of the intellectual argument. I know people are afraid for the jobs. People, 
you know, free trade becomes the, con the convenient bogey. But we have to make this argument that trade is not a zero-sum game. And if we manage this well, we will all benefit from it. So we need the TPP, and it is a bold statement of American commitment, and it demonstrates that the rebalance is not just about the Seventh Fleet. It'll signal the strength of America is not just in your aircraft carriers and B-52, but in your entrepreneurs, your businesses, your scientists, your innovators, your artists. And the TPP will open greater opportunities for everyone. Let me end by talking about Singapore's perspective. You know that Singapore has always articulated the value of America's indispensable role in ensuring peace, stability, and prosperity in Asia. We took advantage of the placid and conducive circumstances that you gave us over the past 50 years. We have taken this position through different, both Republican and Democratic administrations, and we've demonstrated our support to America in concrete ways. When America was asked to leave Subic Bay and Clark Air Base in 1990, we offered the use of our much smaller military facilities. Today, the US remains the heaviest foreign user of Changi Naval Base and Pai Leba Air Base. The commander of the logistics of the Western Pacific operates out of Singapore. In addition, we have rotational deployment of littoral combat ships, and more recently, the P-8 aircraft to Singapore. All this has helped the US military to maintain a presence in the region. I'm proud to say that US-Singapore cooperation has been a pace setter for America's engagement in the region. The 2004 US-Singapore Free Trade Agreement was in fact America's first free trade agreement with an Asian country. And it set high standards, including in areas like the protection of intellectual property. And this is back in 2004. And I reviewed the figures in 2004, I think our bilateral trade was about 30 billion. In the 10 years since the free trade agreement was with Singapore signed, it's doubled. But that's not all. I also discovered that America runs a trade surplus against Singapore, and it's growing. It's now about 20 billion a year. So the point is, you know, free trade works, and it benefits everyone. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here arguing for free trade and asking for this to be expanded to the region. If I was to look at it purely selfishly, I would say, I've got a bilateral agreement with America, that's fine, we don't need to do anything more. But we are here as a matter of principle. America and Singapore also do third-party training programs to provide technical assistance to other countries in order to raise administrative and development capacity. As I said earlier, we also, we've worked very well on the negotiations for the TPP. We're also part of the counter-ISIL coalition. And we've worked together to counter religious extremism in Southeast Asia and its ramifications with the problems in the Middle East. Uh, my Prime Minister has been honoured 
to accept President Obama's invitation to make an official visit and to attend a state dinner in August. This is the first official visit by a Singapore Prime Minister since Mr. Lee Kuan Yew came here in 1985. 1985 is a long time ago. I, was, I, I had just graduated from medical school then, so it's a big deal. But beyond the optics and the niceties of a state dinner, I think what this really signifies is the breadth and depth of our relationship across the pillars of the economy, strategic and defense and cooperation, and how this has been a model relationship over the past five decades. And we will take this opportunity to unveil new areas of cooperation. For instance, in cyber security, new information technology, in homeland security, as well as to highlight perhaps what you may consider softer aspects, education, culture, and stronger people-to-people -people ties. So in this 50th year of diplomatic relations, Singapore and United States have much to celebrate, much to look forward to. And we hope that the strong relationship which America shares with Singapore will continue to have a positive impact, not just for the people in Singapore, but indeed for people all over Asia and ultimately to all American citizens. So thank you again for your patience and thank you for all that you've done over many decades. Thank you, Mr. Minister. Um, as always, a very incisive and thoughtful set of remarks from our Singaporean friends. As Mr. Armitage said in his introduction, Singapore has been a long friend to the United States um, through many administrations. And mm -hmm. I think in particular, over the past 12 months, we've really made some significant progress, many, much of which you've alluded to. Mm -hmm. Last year was a very big year. It was the 25th anniversary of our MOU on defense cooperation, yes. uh, as, you, as you mentioned in yep. your speech. You would be familiar. Yes, uh, and also the 10th anniversary of our strategic framework agreement uh, for defense cooperation. Yes. And at the end of last year, we signed uh, another historic agreement, our Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which expands our defense cooperation in, mm -hmm. in several ways, including cybersecurity, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, counterterrorism, and also significantly, um, we've agreed to have rotational P-8 flights um, out of Singapore, including one that I believe uh, your defense minister and Secretary Carter yes, just, just over rode the on one over the weekend. Yes. Um, and that's in addition to the, 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 the hosting that you're already doing for our littoral combat ships that are going to go up to four simultaneous rotations uh, within a couple of years. And then this year, of course, we've signed the TPP, although there's certainly headwinds in this country um, to getting it passed. Um, but all in all, it's, it's a very big time for the U.S.-Singapore relationship, and Prime Minister Lee is coming to Washington in August. And so I wonder if you can just share with us um, how much room do you think there is to grow this bilateral relationship even further on the defense side or economic side or in other areas? And, and what kinds of, you mentioned a couple of things, but what kind of announcements um, might we expect in conjunction with uh, Prime Minister Lee's visit? Well, I don't want to jump the gun, but as you know, if, if you listen to what I said just now, on the economic front, mm -hmm. uh, we believe our free trade agreement and we believe the TPP, if passed, 
and because of its impact on our region, mm -hmm. uh, we will see significant growth in numbers, in jobs, mm -hmm. in value added, and economic opportunities. So that's one big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, defense, you know, has has been on an upward trajectory, mm -hmm. but frankly, and I think to this crowd, um, it doesn't mean everyone is thrilled by the extent to which uh, the American military engages ours. Mm -hmm. um, the new accounts which need to grow, cybersecurity, information technology, these are areas where America leads, mm -hmm. but these are also areas where there's a growing demand, both vulnerability and opportunities on a global scale. Mm -hmm. and this is something which we want to work, we want to engage at the highest level uh, and have access I mean, these are technologies of the future, mm -hmm. right? And if we say we are close partners and there's huge reservoirs of strategic trust, we must be able to work closely and collaborate on these areas. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there are negative areas, extremism, mm -hmm. countering, counter-terrorism. Uh, and I must tell you, this is the one negative spot in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, paradoxically, the more successful you are in resolving ISIS or ISIL or Daesh in the Middle East, uh, actually there's a conduit that leads all the way back into Southeast Asia. Mm. There are about a thousand people from my part of the world who are fighting in Iraq and Syria. There's a battalion called uh, Katiba Nusantara who speak Bahasa which means we know this battalion must, this is about a thousand people, must come from our part of the world. If they lose their area of operations in the Middle East, they, they're going to come home. Mm -hmm. And when they come home, radicalized, trained, mm -hmm. uh, their potential problems. Mm -hmm. So this is another area we're going to have to work mm -hmm. closely together, closer exchange of intelligence, uh, operational cooperation. So not a lot of these things will be above the radar screen, but mm -hmm. I, I'm pointing right. out that these are going to be crucial areas mm -hmm. of cooperation in order to improve security and stability mm -hmm. in our part of the world. And then there are all the other bits where America does so well, culture, education. Um, we're going to be announcing I'm not sure whether I can announce it. Yeah, I probably shouldn't. But anyway, there, there, there are a few <laughs> more arrangements. Uh, yeah, I got to let the prime minister <laughs> make some, uh, make, make some <laughs> announcements. But again, it will. Uh, these announcements will, will will go to the heart of the people-to-people -people ties mm -hmm. and provide more opportunities for uh, top minds mm -hmm. to spend time here or in Singapore. Uh, to pick each other's brains and to expand our horizons. Mm -hmm. So th there will be some announcements on that mm -hmm. front. So it, it's actually a, a, a multi-dimensional relationship. Uh, sometimes the problem is, uh, you know, only the squeaky wheel mm -hmm. gets grease. And Singapore has not been a squeaky wheel <laughs> for five decades. But, we, but uh, I, I think both sides recognize that even quiet but effective wheels mm -hmm. have value. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Um, let me also just ask you about the South China Sea. Um, 
you, you made um, some very interesting remarks on the issues. And of course, Singapore, another very valuable role that Singapore plays, a contribution that it makes, is by hosting the Shangri-La Dialogue every year. Um, we, we just had one uh, convened last mm -hmm. weekend. It's a really excellent forum where countries can exchange views um, and uh, explain kind of their perspectives on key security issues. And this year's dialogue, I thought, was particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. We are on the cusp of a, of a likely ruling from the arbitral tribunal mm -hmm. for the Philippines case under UNCLOS, um, and that is creating even more anxiety in the region, I think, than, than was there before. And um, the speakers at Shangri-La, um, including Secretary Carter, um, I think made a pretty compelling case, many speakers did, for not only upholding the international rules-based order, um, but specifically for the UNCLOS ruling yes. that it should be binding on uh, both parties and all, all relevant parties, um, and not just the United States, but Japan, Vietnam, France, UK, many countries uh, made a similar um, statement. So my question is, um, in the wake of the ruling, uh, you know, how concerned is Singapore about actions that China may take, um, such as perhaps declaring an ADIS or taking on further reclamation activities? And um, what, if anything, do you think Singapore will be prepared to do um, to, uh, to work with other ASEAN countries or independently to message its position on these issues? Well, this is a delicate topic. I can't speak for China. I don't know what, how it will respond. I think China, if you just pass the statements that have been made over the past year, mm -hmm. uh, has made it quite clear that it will not uh, consider itself bound right. by the arbitral ruling, or right. however it rules. Mm -hmm. right? That part right. is clear. Uh, what is not clear is what they will do mm -hmm. immediately after that. Um, on the part of ASEAN, I mean, many people have asked me, will ASEAN issue a statement? And my answer is that ASEAN is an organization with 10 members, mm -hmm. and we can't say or do anything unless there's unanimous consent, consensus. Um, I'm going to China on Monday, together with the, my, the other uh, foreign ministers mm -hmm. of ASEAN. Uh, so watch this space. Hmm. Um, but the point is that it's not certain yet. And in any case, um, what I can share with you is a perspective from Singapore. But you see, in Singapore, trade is three times our GDP. Mm -hmm. So for us, free trade, open sea lanes, freedom of navigation, overflight are not debating points. They are our lifeblood. So obviously we have to say we believe in the importance of freedom of navigation and overflight. Mm -hmm. From a Singapore perspective, because we are small and vulnerable, we have to say we believe in a rules-based world order. In our experience, when we've had disputes, we've been able to settle them peacefully and mm -hmm. successfully and amiably. And I, I cited the example mm -hmm. of uh, going to the ICJ mm -hmm. over Petrobanka. Uh, so again, we, we, we're going to have to you know, urge everyone that having access to peaceful ways, mm -hmm. means of resolving disputes, you know, and taking full advantage of all legal and diplomatic mechanisms. Mm -hmm. and, the, and there's a very important comment, including UNCLOS 1982, 
uh, I mean, these are principled, consistent positions that we have to take. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't always make me popular uh, with some big powers. Mm -hmm. And then just to be even-handed, I also remind my American friends, it would help if you ratified UNCLOSED. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm being perfectly consistent and principled in making that stand. Yes, we agree. Um, let me turn it over to questions in the audience. Um, let me ask you to introduce yourselves briefly and then, and then uh, ask a question. Alex, should we start with you? Yeah, yeah, microphone is coming your way. Thank you. Alex Feldman from the U.S. Asian Business Council. Good to see you again, Minister. Thank you for being with us. Um, I wanted to follow up on uh, Amy's question. Um, you talked about tr trust deficit, uh, especially in the South China Sea and between the U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. What can the U.S. do as a non-claimant um, to help bridge that deficit and turn it into more of a, a, a strong, even-keeled uh, strategic trust between our two nations. Obviously, uh, we see China's building on these uh, reefs and uh, inlets uh, as escalation and uh, not necessarily in uh, line with you know, a rules-based uh, resolution of these deficits, or these d disputes, sorry. Well, trust is a very elusive quality. It doesn't get built just by talking about it. It gets built by a consistent pattern of behavior and interactions over an extended period of time. The key dynamic, I think, for the next few decades for the world is going to be the relationship between the United States and China. So then the question is, well, I think quite frankly, I think there is a deficit of trust, of strategic trust right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing you need to do is to construct a philosophical framework to convince both the Chinese and the Americans that this is a large world. The Asia Pacific is a big area. There's more than enough space and opportunities for two superpowers. It's not a zero-sum game. And in any case, never before have two superpowers been so interdependent. If you, even if you go back to the Cold War, the interconnectedness today between China and the US is on a completely different order of magnitude from that between the Soviet Union and the US. So the point I'm making here is that, in fact, if you could just hold your horses and think long term, you would realize there's far more to be gained mm -hmm. by working together and trying to minimize uh, points of conflict and friction. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get easy <coughs> solutions. Uh, and the South China Sea is not going to give us any easy, quick wins. Uh, but nevertheless, so, so the first point is after you've established that it makes sense to cooperate and that there's more than enough space and opportunities for everyone. Uh, it is important for America to demonstrate consistency, resolution, resolution and predictability. Now what do I mean by that? You see, if boundaries or lines are uncertain, 
your protagonist has to probe, mm -hmm. has to test where those boundaries are. Where does action and reaction become equal? It's Newton's third law in diplomacy. And until you've reached the point where action equals reaction, mm -hmm. you haven't reached equilibrium. Mm. Now, you want to arrive at equilibrium in a resolute way, but without necessarily in with a hot conflict. Mm -hmm. and, and this requires uh, consistency and, long and a long-term approach in foreign policy. Uh, and, and this requires, quite frankly, bipartisan support in the, U in the U.S. body politic mm -hmm. and for this posture to be maintained across decades. It, it cannot be just subject to the vagaries of administration after administration. Now, consistency and long-term approach is something which you have to do yourself. I mean, I can wish for it, but it's something only you, you know, the American voters and American politicians and leaders will have to, to provide. Um, the third element, and I've already alluded to that in the speech, is the TPP. Mm -hmm. right. The TPP, as I said, goes far beyond just trade. It's about standards. It's about commitment. It's about rules. Mm -hmm. And it is about a whole approach to development. And having negotiated it, I mean, no, no agreement's gonna make everyone happy. It, you know. But if you fail to ratify or, or try to nickel and dime at the last minute, uh, that's going to be very dangerous. You know, to try to open it up and try to slide a few, you know, a few aspects of it and anyone who's done any negotiations knows once you try to reopen something which has been settled, all kinds of things unravel. unravel. So I'm saying that this ratification of the TPP mm -hmm. is crucial. And it will set the standard, it will set, and it will, it will give everyone confidence mm -hmm. that America is here and here to stay. And as I said before, this, these attributes of long-term orientation, predictability, and consistency. If we can do that uh, you know, without engaging in wishful thinking, if we can get all these things in place, uh, I think we can look forward to decades of peace, stability, growth, and opportunity. So that's what we hope for. But you know, we are price takers, we're not price makers. Uh, so that's all we can hope and sometimes try to speak truth to power and then let's see what happens. Other questions? Yes. Thank you so much, Minister. My name is Lynn Kwok and I'm from Brookings Institution. Um, in the wake of the uh, tribunal ruling, um, we can expect some clarity on certain features that uh, China occupies, the status of these features, as well as the maritime entitlements. Um, I think U.S. freedom of navigation operations will help to give teeth the, to the tribal tribunal's rulings insofar as it regularly asserts maritime rights consistent uh, with the tribunal's ruling. I was wondering whether um, we can expect Singapore 
to exercise uh, maritime rights consistent with the tribunal's rulings in the wake of the judgment, number one, or at least to, um, to make diplomatic statements in terms of what it considers excessive maritime claims. Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, as I said, we, had, we, we subscribe to a rules-based world order, and for us, UNCLOS is, is the key pillar, mm -hmm. the set, set of rules. So when the arbitration tribunal issues its ruling, we will obviously study it very carefully. Um, and you know, I think you shouldn't underestimate that there may be implications that go even beyond the South China Sea. Hmm. So again, we should not jump the gun. I think we should, what we should commit to at this stage is to study it carefully. And then if you subscribe to a rules-based world order, then you've got to comply with that. I do not want to get into military operations. I'm not the Minister for Defence. Um, again, but my point I would make is that we, that's not an area that we normally operate in anyway. But, and here's an important point. Um, we do believe that freedom of navigation and overflight is essential for economic reasons. Um, and I think if you speak to any of our navies or air force, they will tell you uh, they do need the ability to operate, deploy and train in exclusive economic zones. So mm -hmm. in fact, that's mm -hmm. another round mm -hmm and perhaps even more fundamental debate mm -hmm. that needs to be resolved. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but mm -hmm. uh, I think your remarks here today and our discussion has uh, shown once again uh, that Singapore, for such a small uh, island nation, has, has such a large voice in shaping regional dynamics. And we very uh, much look forward to Prime Minister Lee's visit here later this summer. Thank you. And thank you for your visit. Thank you. Thank you all for your patience. Thank you.